This is a CBC podcast. This would have looked very different. You have to sort of close your eyes. Where we're standing right now, for example, 160 or 70 years ago, you would have heard cows who were mooing and grazing on, on the lawn of what's now McGill. The man currently inviting us to imagine cows is historian Rod McLeod. And that's just a world that is very hard to imagine right now. But I think that's, that's fun to do. We're standing at the Roddick Gates of McGill University on Sherbrooke Street. And we're here because this is the heart of a historic Montreal neighborhood, the Golden Square Mile. It's a well-to-do, largely Anglophone area that developed in the mid to late 19th century. I often get a kick, I guess, out of stopping and just thinking, how would this have looked different? Former McGill student Lucy Grossman has often found herself doing the same. When you look at it, it seems like you're experiencing kind of a slice of another era. I had lived in the area for the past two and a half years. And around me, all of the houses were largely these mansions that were from the early 1900s. And I guess more specifically, like I was curious also about some of the details on the houses. There's Davis House, which is a McGill building, as is the Hosmer House. And then the Alice Graham House, I believe was the original name. Two of them had these annexes next to them, which were at one point horse stables, I imagine, or early carriage houses. I am very curious as to what Golden Square Mile was like, how it weathered the ages. I think learning more about how Montreal as a city developed, kind of learning the historical context would make people realize kind of how valuable that we have this snapshot of early 1900s history just right here. Hi, I'm Ainsley McClellan, and this is Good Question Montreal. Thank you to Lucy Grossman for this question about the Golden Square Mile, or just the square mile. We'll get into that in a second. The landscape in this neighborhood may have changed dramatically from the days of horses and carriages and footmen, but the remaining buildings tell us something about Montreal society in a bygone era, about power and wealth and even scandal. And the buildings that have been torn down tell us something too. They were a catalyst for Montreal's heritage conservation movement. And they invite us to reflect on the balance that we should be striking today between building something new and preserving our built past. So grab your best walking shoes, maybe a toque if it happens to be as cold a day as it was when we recorded this episode, and come along for the tour. First, let's get ourselves situated. It's an area roughly one square mile between, let's say, to the west, the Grand Seminary, the Sulpician Estate, Guy Street, Côte des Neiges, to the east, Park Avenue, roughly, to the north, Montreal Park, and the south would be uh, Dorchester, now René Lévesque. So uh, quite a substantial chunk of the, what we call today downtown. That's Dinu Boumbarou, policy director and spokesperson for the nonprofit preservation group Heritage Montreal. The area was developed mostly after the 1840s. In those days, uh, the population of Montreal was doubling every 15, 20 years. So uh, it was a, a booming uh, metropolis from the 1850s to the 1930s, so about 80 years. It was the place around 1900 where most of the wealth of Canada was sleeping overnight. He says it's hard to imagine that today. So much power and wealth concentrated in just one neighborhood. But at the time, Montreal had cemented itself as the economic engine of Canada. Development of industry, development of transportation, the Lachine Canal factories, the harbour, everything. Nobody in the 19th century uh, referred to this area as any kind of a square mile. At some point in the 1920s, they began talking about a square mile. 
The question of when the word golden gets attached to it, as I say, is hotly debated. Sometime in the 1950s or 60s, it may not have had that golden moniker in its heyday, but the square mile certainly lived up to it. It was home to rail tycoons, bank presidents, factory owners, largely Anglo-Protestant families who had a tight grip on the reins of political and economic power in the newly united province of Canada. Ron McLeod specializes in the history of the Protestant Anglo community and its institutions. There were the rebellions in 1837, a lot of unrest. It had been resolved. A lot of people felt very confident the economy was starting to boom. And the migration of these families up from old Montreal reshaped the city in ways that can still be seen and felt today. But why did they move to the square mile? One of the reasons that I thought we could begin here was that McGill is very central to the square mile. Or the McGill goal. University was founded in 1821 and built up over the following decades along with the neighborhood. The McGill estate once stretched all the way down to where the Queen Elizabeth Hotel is on René Levesque today. So McGill College originally funded a lot of the building of the university by selling off these lots. McGill College Avenue was really lined as of the 18, late 1850s, 60s, 70s with some very elegant, smaller than mansions, but elegant houses in a row. And they all have those little subterranean doors going down where the servants would go in and everything. And they would have lanes at the back where they would keep the horses. Most of them were south of Sherbrooke. That's sort of the classic division. Villas or mansions to the north. Terraced houses is the fancy British term to the south. Along Sherbrooke between Stanley and Drummond, Rod points out some of the larger mansions that remain. The first of these which is actually the home of John Abbott, the one of Prime Minister of Canada, was almost entirely modified about 20 years after he died, after he went to Ottawa. This is the Forget House, a fancy, straight but elegant stairway going up. All of these houses that were often bought by an up-and-coming family that had enough money to make a splash, like people do today. Nowadays, we may think of the Golden Square Mile as downtown, but in the 19th century, the landowners who were parceling off their land and selling it were marketing the area much like the suburbs were sold a century later, as a way for people who could afford it to get away from it all. John Redpath was um, probably, the, I would say, the brains behind the whole idea of developing this area. That's John Redpath, as in the founder of Redpath Sugar, and one of those responsible for the construction of the Lachine Canal. His land ran... A bit like McGill's, way from down the Gauchetier to actually right up over the top of the mountain. In 1940, he opened Drummond Street after his wife, Jane Drummond, his second wife. He decided to, to subdivide this whole area with lots, third of an acre lot on either side, and with a very elaborate uh, and effective advertising campaign. They were snapped up. Of course, one of the big advertising points was it's far away from the hustle and bustle and disease and lots of plagues, epidemics, typhus and so forth. So they emphasized the air. They called it the salubriousness of the air. We headed up Drummond towards where Dr. Penfield Avenue is today, and you start to see larger mansions, mostly from what you might call the second or third generation of the Golden Square Mile. I mentioned Jane Drummond, Redpath's second wife, who was considerably younger than him. After her death, 
Nobody was interested in keeping the house going. This is 1907, and so the house was eventually demolished, and a lot of the houses that you're seeing here grew up in the wake of that. We stop in front of one of the homes that Lucy mentioned in her question, the Alice Graham house, built in 1925. Alice Graham, who is the only daughter of Hugh Graham, editor for many, many years of the Star, Montreal Star, uh, became Lord Athelstan. Decades later, the house became part of McGill. Looking up at it, I can see different textures of stone on the facade, multiple chimneys, more rounded accents rather than all straight lines. It's an age when one of the marks of having arrived and building a state-of-the-art kind of house is that it's in all kinds of different styles. Italianate design, and people were saying, let's make it look like a French chateau, a Mediterranean villa or whatever. That doesn't sound like a, a coherent style, but you it's sort of consistent. You can see these slightly more eclectic styles in some of the neighboring mansions. Right behind the Alice Graham house, there's this striking orange sandstone building that juts out towards Sir William Osler Promenade. This is the Hosmer House. The Hosmer House, named for businessman Charles Hosmer. His fame as the head of the Canadian Pacific Railway at one point, also involvement in Ogilvy Flower. And a bunch of other ventures. He got his start in the telegraph business. He was later instrumental in opening the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Montreal. He had expensive tastes, too. The Canadian Architecture Collection at McGill describes different rooms in Hosmer House, all with different French design styles. There's a Renaissance rosewood library, a Gothic dining hall, the Grand Baroque staircase. It was built in 1901 by architect Edward Maxwell. He and his brother William designed the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. They also built the mansion just behind Hosmer House, a big red brick Elizabethan Tudor built in 1909, James T. Davis House. They're actually fairly close together. They're not miles and miles of garden in between, but you valued your neighbors because your neighbors were people with also with a lot of money and a lot of prestige. And it's not just showing off to the whole city, but you're keeping up with the Joneses. One of the differences with the Davis family is that they were Catholic. And that manifested itself, I believe, in there actually being a chapel inside this building. A chapel and a dining room that's a replica of a room in the Vatican. You can see those markers of wealth from the exterior too, not just in the size of the mansion, but in the coach houses and the annexes that accompany them. Some of the larger carriage houses with chimneys may have served the dual purpose of housing for the ground staff. Redpath's original estate over there, there's a map that shows they had green houses, carriage houses, houses for the gardeners. McGill itself had a gatehouse right by the gates where we met, where the, the gatekeeper lived with his family. I mean, you know, we have census records. He had, you know, four or five kids and they all lived there. You get an image of the servants at work downstairs and the family having their little spaces upstairs and people doing their own thing. Until, of course, there's a murder in the home. Amy Redpath was the granddaughter of John Redpath. She was the daughter of his youngest son, John James, by his first wife, Ada. Mills, who is the daughter of a famous mayor of Montreal, and there's this crazy story. The father had died some years before. The mother was an invalid, stayed in a dark room all the time. Her youngest son, Clifford, came home one day, went to see her. Two shots were fired. The servants heard bangs, came running, opened up the door. One was dead. The other one died before giving any account of anything. This was a scandal. It hit the papers for about a day or two. Then the story died. Nobody talked about it anymore. It didn't appear in the papers. There was no follow-up. Somebody 
got to the papers. Rod says this story illustrates the power and connections that these families had. Researchers, including some from McGill and Concordia, have looked into this for a journal article and a website called CanadianMysteries.ca. They detail how a coroner's inquest held the day after the deaths was wrapped up quickly, no police officer was ever called, and the bodies were buried within two days. The whole thing was kind of pushed under the rug. So the doctor who investigated the bodies and declared that there was nothing suspicious, helped the whole story get suppressed. That family doctor, John Roddick, would go on to marry Amy Redpath. I don't think either of them was really into each other for a number of reasons. According to sources in the journal article, one reason could be that Amy Redpath had a close and possibly romantic relationship with Mary Rose Shallow, a servant in the Redpath household. After Rose died, Amy had her disinterred and reburied in the Redpath family plot. Amy Redpath and John Roddick remained married for decades, and when he died, she had McGill's Roddick Gates built in his honour. The whole thing was contained and suppressed, I think largely by Amy Redpath, who was a very intelligent and strategic person. So you get a sense of how important it was in any kind of family to have impeccable social credentials and nothing unseemly to happen. Amy Redpath remained living in the family home until her death in 1954. Two years later, the mansion was demolished, one of many Golden Square Mile homes that would meet the same fate during this era. As the early 20th century progressed, life in the Golden Square Mile started to change. New roads opened, carriages gave way to automobiles. St. Catherine Street, which had taken over from old Montreal as the commercial hub of the city, filled up with department stores, offices and theatres. And the children of wealthy families moved into homes in newer residential neighbourhoods, still posh but without the trappings of the grand estates. Uh, you start seeing elegant apartment buildings at the beginning of the century, certainly in the teens and 20s, but the, the old denizens were largely gone by 30s, 40s, and 50s. The bigger the mansion, it became literally like a white elephant. Like, what are you going to do? I mean, nobody wants to live in them. Nobody was that interested in restoring them. By the 1960s and 70s, modernism demanded progress. And big old mansions, they didn't fit. Wreckers finally tore down the Van Horn Mansion in downtown Montreal this weekend. They came in the dead of night to flatten the home of Canadian Pacific Railway builder William Van Horn. Everything sort of hinged on the case of the Van Horn House, which is in fact right here, was right here. The Van Horn Mansion was built at the corner of Stanley and Sherbrooke in 1869. But a century later, the Van Horn estate couldn't pay for its upkeep and it was sold. In 1973, the city, under Mayor Jean Drapeau, approved the demolition. Both the city and the province decided that the home didn't have significant Quebec heritage value. And there was a whole political fracas about tearing this down. It was underhanded. They did it you know, overnight when nobody was looking kind of thing. People like Michael Fish and Phyllis Lambert, these are important names in the heritage movement, literally ran into the house before the bulldozers could get at it and grabbed chunks of just railings. And there's a photograph of Michael Fish holding these knobs of things that are just like, this is got to save this. Inside, it's, it's virtually a treasure house. Fireplaces, heavy carvings, light carvings. It's one of the most beautiful interiors to come out of Canada from the last century. The two of them and several others formed uh, Save Montreal and then Heritage Montreal in the mid-70s, and that became a 
important force for preserving things. And the argument as to whether the Van Horn House could have been saved is an academic one at this point. What's real is what's still standing of the city's 19th century buildings and other historic landmarks. How long they'll remain a part of our landscape, the unique Montreal environment, depends on Montrealers and their city council. Uh, the Quebec government quickly after that started to designate a number of houses, including the Forget House. Stepping inside the Forger House on Sherbrooke Street is like stepping back in time. We are now in the billiard room of Maison Forget. Senator Forget was a French-Canadian businessman, very successful. There are a number of Forget that were involved in the stock exchange, they were involved in the tramway companies. It's a significant property, both because Louis-Joseph Forget was one of a smaller number of francophones to settle in this largely Anglo-Protestant area, and because the home has been remarkably well-preserved on the inside. Dinu Bumbaru, Policy Director for Heritage Montreal, points out the rich wood accents on the wall, a tiled fireplace, and a massive stained glass skylight over the center of the room. It's a house that was acquired by the McDonald Stewart Foundation, a not-for-profit, which has put a lot of effort and attention and care on the house. To Dino Bumbaru, there is a value in preserving these Victorian-era buildings, but he acknowledges it's not an easy task. What would be the point of keeping a Victorian facade of some of these great mansions if you just put a tower behind it and don't deal with the wonderful staircases, the ceilings, whatever. I mean, it's a real puzzle. I mean, to be honest, because of code requirement, it requires a lot of uh, attention and care. He says private and institutional owners have a big role to play. For example, many of the buildings that are still standing in the Golden Square Mile are owned by McGill University. But he says their future is not guaranteed. There's a question that has been raised before the pandemics about the suitability of some of these uh, Victorian marvel for academic purpose. Dino Bumbaru says Heritage Montreal was in discussions with McGill about the fate of their heritage buildings after the university released its master plan for the future of the campus. The plan cites the importance of heritage buildings, but also says they're costly to maintain and difficult to renovate to meet modern needs. It also talks about a targeted reduction of real estate, particularly of buildings before 1985. Eventually, we know that this discussion will come. How will McGill dispose of these houses? We'd like to make sure that they are in good hands in the future. So is it a trust? Is it a foundation structure? Is it a series of covenants? So uh, we're looking forward to resume these discussions. In a statement, the university says its plans for a building may change from one year to the next, depending on evolving academic needs, on building conditions, and on funding. McGill says regardless of who owns the buildings, they would still fall under municipal and provincial rules governing the Mount Royal Heritage Site, though as we heard, Heritage Montreal wants to see additional protections to make sure the buildings are well-maintained. McGill also says that Heritage Montreal will be part of those future discussions. If we kept going like that, we wouldn't have old Montreal. As we wrapped up our grand tour back at the Roddick Gates, Rod McLeod reflected on how the layers of built history all around us are what makes Montreal Montreal. A lot of other cities may have a little pocket somewhere that they just prize, but we have streets and streets of this. And that's really because of the efforts that Montrealers took, really starting in the 70s, 1970s, to say our physical, tangible, built heritage has a value, can be repurposed. On the other hand, he says, even when things don't last, there's value in bearing witness to how things have changed too. Space is here, and we're on it for a short period of time. People before us, they were also on it for a short period of time. 
And whatever they were doing, they were doing it here, where I am. And that's neat. You know what I mean? It's just... Anyway, I guess I'll, I'll end it at that. I don't know. I'm trying to sound desperately philosophical, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> Thanks to Lucy Grossman for this week's question and to Dinu Bumbaru and Rod McLeod for helping to answer it. And a very special thanks to Rod for braving some sub-zero temperatures in order to take us on that tour. If you have a good question that you'd like answered, send it to us at cbc.ca slash goodquestionmontreal. Good Question Montreal is produced by Sarah Dubray with story editing and sound design by Craig Dessen. I'm your host, Ainsley McClellan. Thanks for asking. Talk to you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.